morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. It's a blessed thing to know our position before a Lord and Savior who is full of truth and grace. Amen? Amen. Well, we continue on with our sermon series, Adventures in Acts. Can it happen again? Can we be so Christ-focused that we turn the world upside down again, that we bring Christianity to northwest Arkansas all over again, that we change things everywhere we go and everyone we interact with. I think we can. I think we can be that church of 150 or less that sets the world on fire for Christ again. If we'll just be that Christ-focused church. Amen? So, Two weeks ago, before uh, Mitch came and talked to us last week, we were on Acts 16, perspective, and we talked about Philip, or excuse me, we talked, had Paul in, in Philippi, he was beaten but not crushed, right? He was going through some difficult times, being falsely accused, being beaten in jail, but it did not crush his spirit. We, we looked at the successful wom- woman, Lydia, that businesswoman who seemed to have it all together. And we also looked at the po- possessed slave girl that seemed to be taken advantage of, seemed to be discounted, and was a slave to other people and, and The great thing about both these women, whether they were a total control of their life or their life was a total wreck, they both could be saved through the power of Christ. And that's beautiful because we're somewhere on that spectrum, right, this morning? Amen. And we talked about the jailer and all his household being being changed by the power of, of Christ. And why did that happen? It happened because Paul and Silas turned a prison into a chapel. And I just want you to know that she is staring right at me and paying perfect attention to me. I wish all the babies would look at me that way. I love babies. I can't tell you how thrilled I am to finally be in a church where I hear gurgles and babbling and little cries every once in a while. What a blessing, right? Modern idols is today's topic. Now we're going to jump to chapter 17, Acts 17. Pull out your Bibles because I will not be reading all of this chapter to you, but it will just point out some of the highlights in it. So I want you to have the word before you. And some of your versions won't match my versions, and some of your words might stand out to you where what you see on the board might not. Chapter 17. So each week I promise to give you a little a little geography and a little history, okay? So we're going a lot of places today in our study. We are first going to go to Thessalonica, and then we're going to go to Berea, and then we're going to end up in Athens, okay? Now, both Thessalonica and Berea are on a particular highway, a highway that stretched all the way from the Black Sea across the Aegean and over to the Adriatic. This was a Roman-built road. And we're smack dab in the middle of things today. And we'll see, we'll see uh, Paul goes from Philippi to Amphipolis, past Apollonia, uh, then on to Thessalonica and, and Berea. All these are going across 
this road. Now, some theologians think that when Paul finally reached this road and saw the condition of it, that Mike, he was thinking, maybe I'll make my way to Rome. This is the, this is the path to get to Rome because he desperately wanted to get to Rome to teach and preach in Rome. And, and this highway would have gone all the way across and he would have just a short uh, boat ride over to the boot of Italy. And it would have been very easy to reach Rome. But that's not what God had in store for him in, in our story today. A little bit about Thessalonica. It was named after, after a daughter of Philip II, um, Thessalonica. If, uh, it really means uh, Thessalonian victory, okay? He won a victory there, and, and if you got on a pair of Nike shoes this morning, you have victory shoes. If you want to be, if you want to be uh, victorious, the first thing you need is a good pair of shoes that are victory shoes, right? I'm probably not ever going to be considered victorious in sports, but I could at least wear some victory shoes. Well, she was named after this battle. She was the half-sister to Alexander the Great. On her wedding day in 315 B.C., uh, Cassander, her husband, named the city after her. So that's how we got the name of Thessalonica, okay? Uh, Thessalonian victory is, is what it really means. There we have uh, something interesting. Polytarchus. Polytarchus. It is a word that is used for uh, the governor, the magistrate, the city official in uh, this town of Thessalonica. Now, a lot of atheistic people wanted to point out for years that, that Luke just made this up, okay? That, that the book of Acts was written two or three hundred years after Christ, and it was a made-up story, kind of like uh, the Odyssey, Okay, Homer's Odyssey was made up of this, of this tour of Paul throughout the whole known world. Okay, and the reason that they said this was because uh, Polytarchus is not mentioned anywhere and it's a made up word. It doesn't exist. So Luke in his writings was just, somebody just made this up. Well, then they found the inscription on the Vandar Gate. And guess what word is on the Vandar Gate that archaeology exposed? Polytarchus. And underneath Polytarchus was a list of men who had held that position. And in the 1960s, just to reconfirm, while they were digging out and changing over a bus station to refurbish it, they dug down a little ways, and what they found was the floor uh, of, of an old uh, bathhouse and a mint where they would have minted coins. And guess what inscription was found in that bathhouse? Polytarchus. Okay? So that's an interesting thing found in Thessalonica that proves historically that Luke was a great historian. Thessalonica today is the second largest city in Greece. It just has a little under a million people, and it today is still considered a great port city and a lot of tourism there. We also have our city of Berea. It's modern Berea. 
It's 35 miles west of Thessalonica in the mountains. It is considered a cool, quiet place to get away from the city of Thessalonica. So if you're going to go somewhere and get away, this is a place that you would go and get away. It has the tomb of Philip II. And at the time, at the time of uh, 50, uh, 51 A.D., when Paul is there, it was uh, a commercial center of Macedonia. It now has about 66,000 people in it. During Paul's time, there would have been a small uh, town of about 20,000 in it. So today, we're going to go through Athens. Athens was not the huge, important capital anymore. That had moved on uh, to Corinth. That was Corinth was now the Roman political commercial headquarters for the Roman government in Greece or in the Macedonian area. But it was still uh, the center of all philosophy. All the universities, the big universities, the famous universities were still in Athens, and we have some great uh, philosophers that had schools there. Plato's Academy was started in 385 BC. Now I'm going to kind of put that philosophy into a nutshell and I'm not going to tell you everything about it and there's a lot of things that I will miss but I'm going to nutshell them this morning to, so you can see how they fit into Paul's uh, writings to the Athenians. The physical world they thought we live in was essentially evil. Spiritual things were perfectly good. So physical things are bad, spiritual things are good. It's where we get our word platonic from, okay? If we have a relationship that is totally about a spiritual relationship between you and I, but nothing physical, we call it platonic. And this is where it comes from. However, Christianity believes all physical things are gifts from God and to be used within its guidelines. Then we had the Epicureans. Uh, they founded their school in about 300 B.C. Uh, I'm again, nutshelling their thoughts. You only live once, so make it fun. They really did have inscriptions that said, Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. Now, that is not Epicurus's original thoughts here. They, they had orphaned the original school of thought. But that's what it boiled down to. Uh, once in this time of 50, 51 AD when Paul is going through Athens. They believed in gods, but they thought them distant and uncaring. What do we call that today? When we believe in a god, but we believe he's distant and uncaring, we call that a... It's there in front of you. What color is the white building? Deist. Okay, we call them deists. They believe that God wound the earth up and then, boom, just set it out there and he's no longer involved, right? Now, that was the Epicureans' thought of the world. And then we have Stoicism, Stoic. We're all familiar with someone who is Stoic. Uh, Zeno in 300 B.C. started this school. They believed life is hard and then you die, okay? Stoicism laid great emphasis on the goodness and peace of mind gained from living a life of virtue in accordance with nature. They believed that God was not far away, but in and around everything. We're going to see this again. Remember this. 
They believed that God was not far away, but in and around everything. And God was really divine reasoning. And they believed that this little spark of God lived within all of us and changed the way we did things and motivated us to do things. But when we died, that spark, that spark of, of divinity went back into the collective. All right? You might have seen this. It's what kind of we talk about the force in Star Wars, right? That, that thing that kind of helps us along. But then when we die, it all goes back somewhere else. And, and there is no afterlife to think of and souls the way we think of today. The Areopagus, okay, that literally means Aries Rock, or Mars Hill, as it's referred to. This is a place that acted as a court for deliberating difficult and substantial issues. But it also was a council. And it's a little uh, disheartening when you read this, when they talk about the Areopagus. It was a place, and it was also a council. By the time that Paul is there, it might have even been beside the rock and not on the rock. But I want you to understand, when Paul gives his speech at the Areopagus. This is where he's at. And this is what's behind him. Okay? So as he gives his speech over his shoulder, it is the Acropolis and the Parthenon. Now, this is what it looks like today, but this is a reconstruction of it in a painting of what it looked like then. But historians will tell you that this is probably not correct either because the Greeks painted everything. And they didn't paint them nice colors, okay? They weren't like Lance. They didn't color coordinate everything. No. They had bright, gaudy colors painted all over the place. Anna, while she was in Greece, talked about how gaudy some of the pictures were in the old, inside old bathhouses, Okay? So when you walked up, it would kind of be like, has anybody been in a third world country, has anybody been in a Latin country when they're having a political, uh, 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 what? No, not a political uproar, uh, an election. When they're having a political election and they paint everything, gaudy colors to gain your attention. That's how it would have been in Athens when you walked in. Everybody was trying to paint their goddess or their altar with bright colors and gain your attention and try to get you to focus on their God. Acts 17. What do I mean by modern idols? Anything that steals your love from God or masters your life. That's what we're talking about this morning. Two opposing forces. When I was with the kids uh, about four or five years ago, we went to a little place, um, and it's escaping me, the little town, Sebastian. It's on the east coast of Florida. And Sebastian is really full of gray hairs and blue hairs, okay? It's a little quiet retirement area. It's a beautiful place, but it, it is not tourism central at all. It's very laid back, very easygoing, except right around the inlet. 
Around the inlet of Sebastian, they have a long pier. And the pier is a little bit sideways. It doesn't quite go east, David. It kind of goes a little bit southeast. And what it does is it protects the mouth of the bay, the inlet of the bay, from waves. So ships and boats can go in and out without getting swamped down by by the big waves that are coming through there. And what this has produced... On the other side of it is a place where the waves are trapped and the seafloor rises quickly. And this is a major hangout of surfers for all over Florida because of these huge waves that are produced. And as you know, when you produce these big waves, they go up on the beach. But after a while, they they have to go somewhere. That water has to run back out. Well... That's where the girls and I, Gabby and Alex, were swimming. And we found ourselves in two huge forces. One was coming over the top of us in the ways of waves. And it was making it hard for us to breathe and to get to the surface. At the same time, so much water had been washed up on the beach that it produced what's called a riptide. The water started flowing out like a river, but it's under the surface. So on the top, you have all these waves that are pushing you one way, and underneath, you're being, your body is being sucked out to sea. And the thing about that is, if you turn and you go directly against the current, it's going to crush you. It's going to drown you. It's going to draw you under, because there's no way to fight it directly. So what you have to do is you have to figure out how to go sideways against this and work your way through that riptide as you work with two forces coming at you. And this morning, that's where we find Paul. He's got two forces, two huge tides trying to crush him. One is the Jews and the the other is the Greeks the pagan idol worshipers. And he finds himself in between these two forces. And you're going to see he doesn't turn and run headlong against them, but he tries to break through them and work with them. Verse 1. He's traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, and now he's in Thessalonica. And he does what his custom is. He goes into the synagogue and he starts preaching and teaching the resurrected Christ. Scripture tells us that he spent three Sabbaths, so he's there for at least two weeks, maybe three weeks. And he's starting to to convince the Jews and the Greeks both that this resurrected Christ really is the Savior. And they start to believe in him. And they start to believe in this resurrected Christ. Luke wants us to know that some devout Greeks, some women of high standing, start to believe and hold on to Christianity. Sure they did. Because Paul was teaching that there was neither Jew nor Gentile. There was neither slave nor free. There was neither male or female. But we're all one in Christ. How liberating that would have been in an oppressive society. And they start to follow him. And he starts to to gain some popularity. And Christianity starts to 
to grow and starts to flourish in Thessalonica. And guess what? Jealousy sets in. There were some Jews who were jealous. Now, look at your, script, look at your Bible and tell me. This, this is the ESV. It says that some wicked men of ramble. What does yours say? Verse 5. What kind of men? Bad characters. Anybody else? We've got wicked men, bad characters. Today we'd call them thugs. Do you see this? The Jewish religious leaders go into the marketplace and they recruit, Gordon, some thugs. The people who are supposed to be religious, the people who are supposed to be God-fearing, good, righteous men, go into the marketplace and they recruit a bunch of thugs. Does that seem ironic? That the religious people of the day would go and recruit a bunch of thugs to fight against Paul and his preaching? They drag them to the city authorities, the Polytarchus. Okay, And they tell him, Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, they're turning this world upside down. Well, of course they were. This is the upside down kingdom where servants are lifted on high and are the most valuable. Everything's turned upside down. This is, this is not about persecution and might. This is about love and empathy and kindness. And those people possessing those characters are the ones who are truly valued. And to throw them off, they come to these city authorities who had to be Roman at the time. And they say, hey, he's talking about King Jesus. Well, it puts everyone in an uproar. The whole city authorities. They can't find Paul and Silas, so they're grabbing hold of Jason. He evidently is a Christian who's been following Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. And they've gathered them and dragged them there before the authorities. So the next day, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away to Berea to protect them. The waves have come. There's no way to hold them back. They want to protect Paul and Silas in their teaching. So they send them to Berea. And when they got to Berea, Luke writes that they were a more noble people than the people in Thessalonica. Why are they more noble people? Because they had an open mind. They listened with eagerness to know about Christ. But it's not just their open mind that he likes. It's that they compare what's being taught up against Scripture. And what they see is that, hey, everything that Paul is telling us, everything that Paul and Silas is telling us is just exactly what the Old Testament said would happen. i got to tell you today, sometimes we fight and we become disruptive and we cause dissension because 
we don't like what someone preaches, but we're unwilling to hold that up to Scripture and compare it and see what it looks like. And Luke wants us to know that the Bereans are more noble than the Thessalonians because they possess two things. One, an open mind and the ability and the want to compare that to what they see in the Bible. And that's their determining factor whether they'll follow them or not. Well, again, women of high standing and men follow Christ. But the men in Thessalonica... Those men who were jealous about the popularity of Christ, they can't stand it. So they start going to Berea to stir up trouble. So those people put Paul on a trip. Now notice, I, I, I didn't say put him on a boat or that he walked there because we can't tell. There are both a path. And there were ships that would have gone from that area all the time to Athens. Whether he sailed there or he walked there, we don't know. But the fact is, he got out of town while he stood, could get out of town. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he's talking about his, his, his missionary unit. While he was waiting on Timothy and Silas to come to him. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw the city was full of idols. So Paul either lands on a ship, gets off, and he's just taken back by all the idols, or he walks into the town, and he's taken back at all these idols. Everywhere he goes, he sees idols. But he goes, as he always does, which was his habit, he goes into the synagogue and starts preaching and teaching. And then he goes out into the marketplace. And there's some Epicurean and some Stoic philosophers who are there. And they start listening to Paul and what he's trying to say. But they can't quite grasp this whole thing about Jesus and the resurrection. And they say, what is this babbler talking about? Now really, if you take this word babbler and you look it up in the Greek, it means seed pecker. They're saying, what's this country hick? He's, he's trying to peck around for a philosophy. He's trying to make a stab at. He's trying to pick little seeds up of philosophy, but he hasn't quite got it right. But they accuse him of preaching about new gods, new deities. Notice that they're a little confused at what Paul is trying to say. Paul is talking about one God, but they have it confused and think he's multiple gods. If you want to ask me sometime after church why that is, I'll, I'll talk to you about the word Anastasia and, and Jesus and how they might have confused the two. But they're confused, and so they drag him off to the Areopagus. Now remember, the Areopagus is the rock, and what's right behind him at the Areopagus? The Acropolis. Okay, the Pantheon over his shoulder. Keep that in mind while he's giving this speech. He starts to tell them, now Athenians and foreigners who live here and would spend all their time talking and telling about something new. This was their way of life, just, just talking about new things all the time. He says, 
Standing in the midst of the Areopagus, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar to this inscription to the unknown God. You see, Paul didn't run headlong into the tide, did he? No, he starts to build bridges across it. Paul could have said, listen, you pagan idol worshipers, you heathens, God's going to destroy you if you don't change your way. But he doesn't do that. He tries to build bridges between them. He says, I can see that you're religious. He tries to find something in common with us, with them. I see you're religious. He starts there, building bridges. Folks, as we try to evangelize the world, sometimes maybe we shouldn't just go headlong and condemning them. We should find something in common with them to talk about. And we should build bridges and not go straight into the oncoming tide, but find a way to cut into it tactfully so we might save more. Amen? There's been enough headlong bashing running straight into it, right? Let's find a way to find and build bridges between us and those who are lost. He says, I want to talk to you about this unknown God. And then Paul breaks into a sermon. I want you to see how at first that the Epicureans would have, would have found this very intriguing. The God who made the world and everything in it and being Lord of heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man nor is he served by human hands. Their ears would have perked up. Oh, that's what we've been saying all along. They're deists, remember? Yeah, God doesn't need us. He just set everything in motion and then, and then just set us on our way. But then he kind of catches them sideways. Yet he's actually not far from each of us. Oh, that must, they must have, what? What did you say, Paul? He's not far from each of us? Now the Stoics begin to listen in in him we live and move and have our very being the stoics are now really starting to pay attention right because they believe that about their gods how that spark is in them so now he has their attention being then god's offspring we ought not to think the divine is like gold or silver or stone an image found by the art or the imagination of men now he's starting to step on both toes the times of ignorance when God overlooked, but now he condemns all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. The Epicureans don't like that. Why? Live it up now because when you're dead, you're like Rover. You're dead all over. But now Paul's saying, oh, wait a minute. You need to live a life for Christ because there is a day of judgment. There is a day that you're going to enter into a, an eternal life, a resurrection. And then now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. 
You see, this really is the dividing line for many of them. Whether they're from Plato or, or they're Stoics, it, it doesn't really matter. Epicureans, when you hear about the resurrection of God, that's the dividing line. Either you're going to believe that I have a future because Jesus Christ was saved from the dead and was resurrected and I have a hope or I'm like Rover, when I die I'm dead all over. Isn't that really the dividing line for all of us? The resurrection of Jesus Christ, either you believe that or you don't. Guess what? Some believe and some mock him. Some want to hear more and some will walk away. Can I tell you this morning, if you're an evangelistic soul, if you're trying to set the world on fire by telling your friends and your neighbors and those you work with about Jesus Christ, I don't care how well you tell it, only some of them are going to get it. Only some of them will accept it. Don't be offset. Don't be don't, don't be depressed because you can't change everyone. Paul didn't, Christ didn't, and we're not going to. So let's talk about this. For as I passed among and observed the objects of your worship. This morning I want to talk about that. What is our modern idols today? What are the things, what are the objects of our worship? I'll give you three or four, and then the sermon is yours. What's your objects of worship this morning? Is it power, title, prestige, popularity? For those of you who are in, who are young and, and starting out your career, can I tell you, you will be most miserable. If your idol becomes title and prestige, I've been there. And it has consumed me and made me miserable. And it will do the same to you because that idol will always let you down. Some of you, it's money. Material things. You got to have the car. You got to have the truck. You, farmers, you got to have the tractor, right? And it's not just to have the tractor. You've got to have the right implements to pull behind the tractor, right? Or maybe, maybe, young men, it's lust of the eye, and you've got a problem with that. Maybe pornography has become your idol, and you can't get away from it. And you're addicted to it, and it controls you, and, and now you worship it. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's food or tobacco. Well, Keith, really? Food? I mean, come on, guys. I remember a little Disney show a while back where the animals were all watching the family around a table of food. And the animals had come to think that the people worshipped food because they saw them pray to the food. They saw cars delivering the food. They saw people gathering around the food. And their idea was that food had become their idol. It wouldn't be too far-fetched, would it? Looking at the size of us as Americans as a whole. 
Well, Keith, why in the world would you bring that up? Well, Paul says, I have the right to do anything you say. He's talking about, he's talking about the Greeks. They say, I have the right to do anything. But Paul says, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, they say, but I will not be mastered by anything. The NLT says, I will not be slave to anything. Folks, we can't serve two masters, right? We can only have one. And if food or drug or alcohol or tobacco has become our master, if it has mastered us, then we're now giving our love and our sacrifice to something other than God. Here's a big one I see today in the church, all right? I, I thought I could go, Gordon, I'm sorry, I thought I could go a whole service wearing a jacket, but I can't do it, man. It's burning up up here. Approval of others. Lance, I would love you even more than I do if you would go in there and bump that air conditioner down about three degrees. Approval of others. Done. <laughs> about to break in a sweat anyway. I'm on time. Approval of parents. Can I tell you, this is a huge one in the church, and I'm not speaking to the young people today. I'm speaking to the grown men who are still trying to gain the approval of their mama or their daddy. And their religion has become about doing what mommy or daddy said to do. And not having a close, deep relationship with Christ in a manner in which he draws us to, but just to be approved by them. And you, you think to yourself that, that this probably is a problem with youngsters, but I'm telling you that I see it more with adults than anybody else. And some of you are trying to still win the approval of people in your family who are past and gone more than you are trying to become followers and disciples of Christ. Don't make the approval of your parents greater than your relationship with Christ, because he's the only one you need approval with. Amen? That deep fulfillness, fullness of Christ. Some of us, we need our peers. Some of us need the approval of Facebook and the crowd there. Have you seen that? Oh, you just, you want to shove your finger down your throat and puke every time you see it on Facebook. People who have to win the approval of everybody. Who decide whether they're doing good or bad by how many clicks they get. God, folks, that's become some people's idol. But can I tell you the greatest one that I see, and I'll bet you it was the same one that Paul had to deal with too. Idolizing ourselves. It's called narcissism, right? 
we have begun to become our greatest idol. Because, see, we want Christ to fit in our schedule. We don't want Christ getting in our way. We don't want Christ getting in the way of the baseball games or the softball games or the basketball games or the cheerleading camps. We don't want God getting in in the way of our careers and our work and the worship times getting in the way of, of being able to commit ourselves totally to Christ. We don't want God getting in the way of our work and being successful at our work. We don't want God to get in the way of our retirement or our bank accounts. We want to be able to do whatever we want to do the way we want to do it. And and Christ has to fit into our schedule. Why? Because we're our biggest idol. i got to tell you, I'm guilty of this, where Keith becomes his biggest idol. And everything, Melissa, comes about, about me. It all becomes about me. And I forget. It's all about Jesus Christ. This morning, I, I don't know what your idols are, okay? You do. You know. And i got to tell you this morning, if I've gone through all these things that have become idols and you can't find yourself on that, you need to come talk to me. I'll find your idol for you. It's probably arrogance. We'll come to it together. Folks, if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you haven't committed your life to Christ, if you haven't confessed him, if you haven't put him on in baptism, if you're not living a life to find the fullness of your life in Christ this morning, won't you commit yourself to him? The pews are always open. The elders will be at the back of the church waiting on you if you need to recommit your life or if you need to put him on in baptism or you just, wanna, you just want somebody to, to, to pull aside and pray for you. The elders and I are here and we'd love to do that with you. Can we set the world on fire? I have three more minutes of this, but I promised Lance. (laughs) Folks, you should have one idol, and it's the rock star Jesus Christ. And your whole world needs to revolve around him. And Dawn, when it does, life is beautiful. When he is the center of our attention, life is joyous no matter what's going on. Amen? Won't you stand? Won't you sing together? Come.